Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. It's Wednesday, June 29th, 2022. It's the day after primary day number one of 2022 here in New York. Uh, there are two primary dates, if you don't know that by now, including one coming up in August for state Senate and U.S. House seats. But the first primary day is now over. There are still some ballots being counted, of course, including some absentee votes, but we have most of the results, if uh, not getting close to all here, from the primaries for statewide races, state assembly races, and some lower ballot contests, including some party positions. There were some interesting things going on there, especially within the Brooklyn Democratic Party, as we covered recently at Gotham Gazette. You can find all our election coverage, of course, at GothamGazette.com. In the statewide races, Governor Kathy Hochul winning fairly easily in the Democratic primary for governor, Representative Lee Zeldin winning by a fairly large margin in the Republican primary for governor, setting them up for the general election matchup, along with the candidates for other smaller parties who will be on the ballot this fall. They each got their desired lieutenant governor, running mate, Antonio Delgado, who has just been in office as lieutenant governor for a few weeks uh, after leaving Congress to replace Brian Benjamin, who had to resign from office as uh, Governor Hochul's first lieutenant governor. Uh, Delgado winning the lieutenant governor primary on the Democratic side by a very wide margin, uh, surprising to me at least. And on the Republican side, uh, Allison Esposito, unchallenged, uh, was Lee Zeldin's pick as a running mate. None of the other Republican candidates for governor put someone forward. And she is now into the general election with Zeldin. She's a NYP deputy inspector. Uh, so that will add, of course, more focus on crime and public safety to the Republican uh, election and race in the general contest against Hochul and others. And we saw uh, a variety of results, of course, in the state assembly, which uh, mostly wound up coming down for incumbents. I think uh, a little bit of a surprise there, which probably tied in with low voter turnout. All right. So that's a, a quick overview of some of what happened here on primary day number one here in June 2022. To discuss it and break it all down with me, I'm very happy to be joined by Jeff Colton of City and State New York, uh, who uh, I'm not just saying this, Jeff, uh, knows uh, more than anybody about all the details of what's happening in New York politics. Um, it's incredible to me how well you are able to focus on the citywide stuff, the statewide stuff, and then also know what's going on in so many local races. So definitely wanted to uh, to have you join me here to break it all down. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm learning from you. I am learning from the dozens and hundreds of uh, people that are working these races and covering these races uh, across the state. So, uh, you yeah. know, I'm glad that there's uh, election nerds out there <laughs> that uh, care what you and I have to write about and uh, what we have to say. Yeah, no. And uh, and and likewise, uh, there's there's so many uh, smart people out there working on campaigns, working in as election lawyers, doing uh, voter analysis, mapping by Steve Romalewski at the Cuning Mapping Center, who we always the have best. to Absolutely. give a shout out to Steve. Uh, and I know he's I know he's listening or I think he is anyway. All right, Jeff. So let's start with the statewide races. We've got a lot of stuff to get into here. But um, on the Democratic side, on the gubernatorial race. Were you surprised by how well Kathy Hochul did here? She's at roughly two thirds of the vote. Um, this is 
right in line with Andrew Cuomo's last couple performances where he was challenged from the left. Uh, any any thoughts on the margin there? Any any surprises to you? You know, this is roughly where Cuomo did his last two reelections, approximately two thirds of the vote both times. Uh, I guess maybe the only surprise is that Swazi, Tom Swazi, didn't seem to eat into that number. Uh, you know, he was running a moderate uh you could say public safety focused campaign uh, and was also really running to get uh, the votes of those who are still loyal to former Governor Andrew Cuomo. He made that explicit and actually won a couple of endorsements even from uh, these you know organizations that are working to clear Cuomo's name or whatever. Uh, and yet Swazi ended up with only 12 percent, basically, in the Democratic primary, a uh, very weak showing from him. Uh, Jumani ended up with uh, about 19 percent, um, which is also far below the previous two progressive challengers we saw in statewide gubernatorial primaries, Cynthia Nixon in 2018 and Zephyr Teachout in 2014. So, uh, you know, there's just so many ways you can slice these numbers. But uh, I guess the 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 thing to say is that Hochul had a really strong performance in line with uh, the previous governor who also had really strong performances in his reelection efforts. Yeah. I mean, right now she's actually out outpacing Cuomo uh, by a couple percentage points. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see if that holds when all the votes are counted. Um, and, and that would be, that would be pretty remarkable considering she was facing two very legit uh, candidates, you know, I mean, Cynthia Nixon put forward a spirited effort and was obviously an act advocate and, you know, had a strong learning curve to get up to speed on issues. But, you know, she's she's an actress, her career. She's not a, 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 po- a political person beyond some of her activism. So, um, you know, and then Zephyr Teachout at the time, at least, was was, you know, again, an activist, but also a law professor. And so uh, for Hochul here against two sitting elected officials who've been running races and winning elections, you know, pretty remarkable if she uh, even even if she comes right around Cuomo's margin of last time. I think what's one thing that's interesting. Well, first, I want to note that she outspent her competition just like Cuomo did by huge margins. And that matters, right? It matters to be the sitting governor, to be doing bill signings and announcements. It matters to be the sitting governor, to have lots of labor endorsements and party officials getting behind you. And then she outspent her competition by tens of millions of dollars. So that that's important to note. Um, I was trying to crunch the numbers. It was uh, like, as of two weeks ago, she had spent 6.8 million. I think that's right. Uh, 6.8 million. And I'm sure many more millions have been spent in the last two weeks leading up to the election, getting out TV ads, uh, getting, you know, getting out the vote and whatever else. Uh, That is just, yes, so much more than (laughs) than anybody. Uh, It's just it's. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, I don't think Jamani Williams raised a million dollars. I mean, I don't think I'm not sure he even came close to raising a million. Uh, She's raised, you know, over 30 million. I, that surprises me a little. I mean, I, I this is this is one thing I wanted to get your perspective on. We've touched on it a little, but one thing that's that's interesting here is that we're seeing even with these two very uh, you know established other candidates in the race, 
the margin for the sitting governor is about the same, whether it's against one real opponent or two real opponents here. It's surprising, as you said, that Swazi didn't cut into Hochul's uh, numbers more. And he seems to have just sort of come in at a portion of the non-incumbent vote. I'm not really sure what to make of that. You know, I thought that when Cynthia Nixon's effort teach out got roughly a third of the vote against Andrew Cuomo, that a significant chunk of that was sort of the progressive Democratic electorate and mix in some anti-Cuomo vote of, of various political stripes, but that that a lot of that was sort of maybe somewhere around what I think a lot of people thought was something of a floor, not a ceiling for progressives. And then you come in with this race and Jamani Williams is way below that number while Swazi is getting a portion of the non-incumbent vote. What do you make of that? Because to me, I don't, I don't, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that it's just a sort of like incumbent, anti-incumbent vote and the anti-incumbent vote has progressives in there. And then just other people who are interested in whatever, you know, another candidate might have to say, I, I think there's other things going on there that progressives very much underperformed here in this race that Cuomo out of the mix sort of changes calculations. But what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, just looking at the progressive side, looking at Jumani Williams right now, uh, he definitely did not make a clear statewide case against voting for Kathy Hochul. Uh, and I mean that in a couple of ways. I mean, first of all, uh, he simply didn't get out his message that well when we're talking about television ads, digital ads. He didn't have the money to spend. And, uh, you know, as, as he freely admits and as there's been some reporting, uh, he had some real challenges uh, personally over the past six months. Uh, his, his wife, uh, India Sneed, uh, had cancer. She's now cancer-free, as he he mentioned last night uh, on election night. His uh, baby daughter was born prematurely and had to spend time in the the NICU. Uh, so you know, Jumani Williams was dealing with a lot and just simply could not run as uh, aggressive of a statewide campaign as he might have hoped, and as uh, you know, the statewide progressive movement might have hoped. So. You know, Cynthia Nixon, my God, she was getting coverage in People magazine and Entertainment mm-hmm. Tonight. And then also uh, just all this you know, political coverage. Uh, this was a nationwide story. People knew that that actress that you might have seen in Sex and the City was uh, was running for governor. Uh, Jumani didn't have that that same kind of uh, attention. And I think there's a lot of people that, uh, that yes, came out and, and voted for Nixon because of that excitement because they learned about it that literally might not have known that there was a competitive primary happening this time around. I mean, the numbers show it. A voter turnout is, uh, I don't know, roughly half of what it was in 2018, a little more than half, yeah, it's uh, but it's well. way down from 2018. So that's a portion of it. Uh, but then also, that that's just getting the message out. The actual message was also a little bit less clear. I mean, Cuomo had been governor for, at the time, eight years. There was a, a long record of things you could point to, uh, of, of you know, various progressive policies that he hadn't moved on or that he had had blocked. There was the Independent Democratic Conference, which was getting a lot of attention at the time. You know, Cuomo was uh, allegedly working behind the scenes to keep Republicans or at least conservative efforts in power. 
in the state Senate. Uh, it was a pretty clear case that I think was was made, you know, pretty well and resonated with approximately one third of the Democratic mm -hmm. primary voters. The case against Hochul simply isn't as strong. Uh, you can say that she uh, is taking money from big donors. Uh, you can say that she you know, didn't move some progressive legislation in this past year, but it's only been uh, 10 months, nine months of her as governor. Uh, and I think there's a lot of voters out there who, even if they are progressive, are saying, well, eh, you know, I'm willing to give this new governor a chance. Um, I think gender is also a big part of it. Uh, you know, this is all anecdotal, but I've heard from many people, many uh, progressives uh, who are saying, well, hey, you know, she's the first female governor in New York state history, you know, like. Mm -hmm. uh, especially considering the fact that that Jumani Williams wasn't really expected to have a chance. A lot of people are saying, yeah, you know, I'm going to vote for her. I'm going to give her that support. Uh, you know, we just saw the Supreme Court uh, effectively overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, you know, women's rights and, and things like abortion are really on the top of Democratic voters' minds. And I think this all went together to uh, to help Hochul, uh, you know, yeah. who knows what's going to what it's going to be like in four years if she runs for for reelection. Uh, but at this point, I think that the progressive case against her was not made as strongly. And uh, I think that can can really go far to explain why she was so strong and why Williams was was so weak. And, and, and Swazi, I mean, I guess that's a that's a whole different case. I'm not even speaking about that. But. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on a lot of the, the keys there. I think, um, you know, the lack of the sort of anti Cuomo movement here really zaps a lot of energy from the left. I think there are reasons that uh, Williams's campaign was was held back a little bit, but also that, you know, he just continues to have a hard time raising money. I'm not quite sure why he can't do a little better on that, given there is all this sort of uh, grassroots, you know, progressive energy out there. Uh, he doesn't seem to, you know, have, have really gotten that well tapped into that. Um, and, you know, the working families party, which is behind him, you know, didn't seem able to help him sort of really circle the wagons and bring people on board who would have helped, you know, tip the scales a little bit more. I mean, for example, uh, his lieutenant governor running mate, Anna Maria Archilla, who, who again, didn't do very well and did significantly worse than I expected. Um, you know, she got a bunch of endorsements he didn't get from, you know, some very high profile congressional office holders, state legislative office holders. And, you know, those people w couldn't be convinced seemingly to jump in with Jamani Williams. I think you got it. Some of the reasons why, but, you know, they really didn't make this opportunity for, you know, as close to an open governor's race as there's been in a long time, um, you know, to have it be sort of a progressive left movement campaign. And that's that's pretty interesting. I'm so eager to find out what happened behind the scenes with the Ocasio-Cortez endorsement, especially yeah. uh, why it came so late, whether that was a strategic decision on Archila and AOC's part to have the endorsement come late, why uh, AOC didn't seem to uh, throw her back into it. You know, we never saw yep. like a rally. I didn't see any TV ads. Uh, it, it seemed uh, this just, I don't, I don't know any of this, but I'm intrigued about uh, a lot of the decisions uh, and a lot of the results here about well, yes, it, the, the leaders and who they chose and, and how and I, they helped these statewide campaigns. And I think you got it. Some of it, you know, Hochul is not Cuomo. She's run, you know, there's 
complaints people have with her in the legislature around how she handled the, some of the last minute budget stuff around the bill stadium and criminal justice reforms. But for the most part, people are still happy with her ushering in a, a new era of collaboration. And uh, she's not Cuomo and she hasn't treated people the way he treated people. And um, and then and then you also got it. I don't I think people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Nidia Velasquez, Jamal Bowman, who all supported Anna Maria Archilla, were probably very hesitant to endorse against the state's first female governor who uh, was has governed fairly moderately, but also done a lot of things that progressives want and like and, and is fairly new on the job. Uh, but we, we do need more information in there. I will point people, you know, I had Jamani Williams on the show to make a closing argument and we got into some of this. And he was, of course, not ready to admit he was going to lose and he was not ready to, you know, have a sort of a a debrief on what went wrong, but I was pushing him on some of this stuff. So there, there was an interesting conversation there even before the vote that we had. So if folks want to check that out because I, I tried to ask him, Hey, why did AOC endorse your running mate, but not you? And yeah, there was still time left for him to try to get the endorsement. So he wasn't able to be so, you know, conclusive on that, but it was an interesting conversation. The other thing I asked him, and then we should move on. You know, I said to get to your point, Jeff, about the vision and, and the campaign, you know, to make it sort of this strong leftist movement campaign, you know, there, there was there was no slogan. There was no clear sort of branding. There was no uh, very obvious to me, you know, sort of here are the main things I'm running on and would deliver on it as governor. I mean, if you listen, of course, he talked about affordable housing, uh, health care uh, and, and other issues. But it, it just wasn't packaged in this sort of sweeping, ambitious, uh, exciting way. And I think there were some real challenges with the way the, the campaign was run. Um, all right. Yeah. And, and look, I think I need to acknowledge, too, uh, progressives had a really bad night across the state. I mean, when we're talking about assembly primaries. Uh, so, yes, we can talk about the specifics of the Williams versus Hochul situation and Delgado versus Archila. Um, but I think it's distinctly possible uh, that the progressive brand right now is really weakened among Democratic voters. I think there's a lot of voters who uh, are simply, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm hesitant to draw too many conclusions here about whether it's about crime or the taxes and inflation. I mean, who knows? But uh, I think it's, uh, you know, there's some evidence that uh, simply being branded as a progressive, being associated with the Working Families Party and the DSA could uh, really be hurting Democrats this year. Mm. Go ahead. Say more about that. I want to talk about the Republican gubernatorial race, but but go ahead. I mean, while we're on it, uh, give us the give us the big takeaways on these assembly races. There was a, a pretty big um, leftist slate of candidates either trying to win open seats or take out incumbents. Um, there were, uh, you know, some interesting races where establishment folks tried to put forward some more moderate candidates to take out some of the sitting progressives. Uh, but, but pretty much across the board, uh, incumbents won, although there were there were some interesting ones. And, and again, in, in at least an open seat or two, there were some interesting results. So uh, go ahead with, you know, some of your some of your top lines there and, and you know, any specifics you want to shout out. Yeah, gosh, I mean, There's basically, so if you were. There's so many races. I, I guess, yeah, the, the top line is if you are a, a working families party or a DSA aligned candidate, 
that was trying to uh, flip a seat. Uh, it was a really bad night. Uh, and this is, you know, maybe this is simply a return to the status quo. You know, in general, uh, beating an incumbent, uh, flipping an assembly seat uh, is, is pretty rare in New York. It's been traditionally pretty rare. Uh, that has kind of changed in the past two cycles. Um, you know, in 2020, we saw DSA candidates go, I want to say it was like five for five in in beating uh, more moderate uh, incumbents. Uh, it was really impressive. And, you know, there was, I think, high expectations for the slate this year. Uh, WFP also ran uh, a slate of nine candidates, uh, most of them hoping to defeat incumbents. WFP ended up going uh, two for nine with their high priority races. Uh, two for nine. That's, you know, that's weak. I mean, these were difficult races. You know, let's be mm -hmm. fair here. They weren't expecting to win all nine, but, you know, a really weak uh, situation. And then for the actual DSA endorsed candidates, uh, I think it was one for four or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, as far as non-incumbents, they did hold on to uh, the incumbent seats. Um, and actually, shout out to Ferris Front Forest. I was thinking she might lose uh, mm -hmm. to a county-backed candidate, Olaniki Alabi, in, in central Brooklyn. But uh, Sioux Front Forest held on easily, one, one with a very comfortable margin. So yeah, DSA didn't lose any seats. Uh, the WFP didn't lose any seats, I don't think. But uh, as far as like, you know, their their focused races where they were trying to uh, take over and basically the, the plan here is trying to shift the assembly majority in a more progressive direction. Right. Uh, very little progress in in that uh, in that effort, in that yeah. goal. You know, it's interesting. You got at some of the some of the things at play here. We don't really know. You know, it's very hard to sort of separate the factors and know. But you know, you got at sort of the zeitgeist around crime and public safety and inflation and you know the concerns that are sort of top of mind for people. And you know, in some ways, that's where the leftist candidates are supposed to come in and and you know deliver their message and say we have a way out of these issues and here's the alternative vision to the status quo and and you know that's what they tried to do and that's part of what Jamani Williams tried to do. Um, but maybe it wasn't done that effectively. Maybe there's, uh, you know, clearly the turnout numbers, they, you know, weren't able to motivate more people to go to the polls uh, with this big drop off. Maybe there's some real voter fatigue. Maybe it's the split primaries, you know, undercut some of that. <clears throat> maybe there's some activist fatigue as well. You know, we're now moving further into the sort of post-Trump, post-Cuomo Era. You mentioned the Independent Democratic Conference of the State Senate, which motivated so many people in 2018 to vote in the in the state Senate primaries that year. So, you know, there's a lot of factors um, at play here. And then also, as you said, after winning a bunch of seats, it can be very hard to continue to win new seats uh, and especially to topple incumbents. So a lot of interesting factors at play. Let me ask you if there's any specific races other than Assemblymember uh, Sufran Forrest holding on to her seat in central Brooklyn. Any others you want to highlight that were particularly interesting to you going in? Um, you know, we did a piece at Gotham Gazette just before primary day on the lower Manhattan Assembly District 65, which Yuli knew is vacating to run for Congress. That was a, you know, one of the very interesting races with a DSA back candidate. 
the not you know the the expected winner I think is safe to say Grace Lee who is not the DSA candidate won that race fairly handily you know that was a pretty interesting one to me that was also very interesting in terms of demographic representation having a person of Asian background representing the district that includes Manhattan's Chinatown any other uh, races that you want to point to. Um, I, I, there's at least one in Brooklyn. I, I think we, we haven't seen the, the final tally on where assembly member Eric Delon was being challenged from the left. That could be maybe some still hope for pickup, uh, from the progressive movement, any specific races you want to point to? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll jump on that one quickly. Right. Sure. Uh, I mean, last I saw Sammy Namir Olivares is down about 190 votes to wow. Assemblymember Eric Delon. Um, of course, we're still waiting on absentee ballots to come in, but 190 votes in a really low turnout election. Um, I, I would think that uh, barring a, uh, you know, absentee ballot miracle, um, that Delon is going to hold on to that one. And, and that one's particularly disappointing because that's an area, Bushwick and Cypress Hills, that is represented by uh, DSA-endorsed Senator uh, Julia Salazar. It's represented by Sandy Nurse, uh, a real progressive on the in the city council. Uh, Nidia Velazquez in Congress, a real progressive. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, there were high hopes for uh, for Namir Olivares to uh, to flip it, and, and at this point, it looks like not. Um, I will say actually that I said that there was no real loss of influence in Albany. Um, yeah, you know what? You, you bring up a good point with that Lower Manhattan eighty sixty five race. Uh, Assemblymember Yuli New uh, is not a DSA candidate, but certainly a progressive part of the citywide progressive movement. Uh, she's the kind of candidate or the kind of assembly member that, you know, would vote no on pieces of the state budget uh, because she didn't think they went far enough uh, or they went too far in some cases, but, you know, definitely a citywide progressive voice. Um, yeah. That seat uh, was won by Grace Lee who actually ran against Yulene two years ago and, and lost. Uh, so, you know, uh, that one's a little complicated, right? It's, it's, it wasn't a DSA seat. The DSA candidate didn't win, but uh, I know that the progressive movement is, is very uncomfortable uh, with Lee, certainly. Um, some mm -hmm. of her positions are certainly progressive, but uh, just uh, there's a feeling that she would not be a part. She will not associate uh, with the DSA candidates, with the WFP very much outside of that. So there, there is actually a little bit of a potentially kind of a loss of influence, uh, loss of a, a, you know, a vote in the assembly yeah. there on progressive issues. So keeping an eye on that one. Um, some other races to, to look at, um, I, I guess I have to shout out uh, Sarahana Shrestha uh, in the Hudson Valley defeated assembly member Kevin Cahill. Uh, that mm -hmm. was a Democratic Socialist of America backed candidate, Sarahana. Um, history making, she's Nepali American. Kevin Cahill is a powerful assembly member, long serving. Uh, I believe he chairs the insurance committee, definitely a, one of the more powerful uh, committees in Albany. This is this was a huge flip. Um, so, you know, nothing to take away. You know, overall, um, things might have been bad, but that was certainly a, a bright spot. A lot of progressives are happy about that. And I'm sure a lot of, uh, you know, uh, folks with with Carl Hasty, uh, you know, more um, establishment focused uh, status quo. They're looking at that one and definitely worried uh, about a, a growth of, of power of the progressive movement no. in the Hudson Valley. 
Before you name so any others, I just want to I just want to quickly mention. You know, we're talking mm-hmm. for for folks who aren't as intimately involved here. You know, we're talking about a 150 seat assembly. The Democrats control a supermajority of somewhere around 107 of those seats. So when we talk about any one or two seats, we're not talking about a huge shift of influence. But when those seats start to add up to, uh, you know, sort of a progressive block that can help influence things of. 10 to 20 seats, then you're talking about, you know, a significant group of folks. And that's included people who are aligned with the Democratic Socialists or the WFP and then people who are sort of adjacent to that movement um, or people who are WFP, but not quite DSA. Uh, and, and so it's gotten very interesting over these last several years because uh, Speaker Carl Hasty has certainly felt more heat on his left uh, and, you know, the state Senate has moved, you know, much more quickly to sort of being a more uh, progressive reformist sort of body than the assembly has. And so these are all interesting pieces, you know, in the margins here as to, you know, uh, the balance of power within that chamber, because um, as we've reported, as you've reported, city and state, you know, there's there's a lot of discussion in Albany about the assembly sort of trailing now the state Senate on progressive issues and on not even issues that are necessarily progressive, but just sort of reform issues and uh, transparency issues and things like that. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics at, at play here. Yeah, well said. Uh, I mean, look, Carl Hasty is going to remain the speaker of the state uh, <laughs> assembly. I don't think there's any any question there. Uh, and that's not even in, you know, has never been in question. But uh, yes, the, the the plan here from the progressive movement and all of its various uh, fingers was, yeah, to, you know, shift some votes and, and try and build up more progressive power. So that's kind of the the overarching focus here. And, and I'll focus on a couple more Please. races quickly. Uh, Kathy Nolan uh, has retired in Western Queens, representing Long Island City, Sunnyside. And she will now be replaced by Juan Ardilla, uh, a Working Families Party-backed progressive who previously worked for Brad Lander. Uh, he is uh, he is young, he is Latino. Uh, that's the kind of thing that progressives are gonna be very happy to see, uh, a, a replacement of a uh, you know county-backed uh, elderly uh, white candidate with a a young progressive Latino, so interesting race to watch there. In an and area as you say, that's, that's a lot of progressive votes. That's one of these open seats where you do see some movement, you know, to the left. So again, you know, we in our conclusions here, you know, nothing is a is a, as sweeping as you know um, some top lines might sometimes indicate. There were some, as you said, you know, there were some wins for for forces on the left. Just a lot of losses in the attempts to topple sitting incumbents. Yep, yep, well said. And go then, on, go on. Uh, there was a, a more a more complicated uh, race uh, in <laughs> Westchester County, where Assemblymember Tom Abenanti uh, lost to Mary Jane Shimsky. Mary Jane Shimsky is a Westchester County legislator who was endorsed by the Westchester County Democratic Party. The the local party went against the uh, incumbent, Tom Abenanti, and she was also endorsed by the Working (laughs) Families Party. So that one doesn't fit quite as easily into the, you know, progressive uh, tops uh, topples and a, you know, moderate incumbent situation. Um, And frankly, I don't even know all the, you know, inner gossip and and details that went into that race. But, uh, you know, keep an eye on Shimsky. That is a seat uh, where we saw an incumbent lose. And then the other race where we saw an incumbent lose on Tuesday night was a 
Assemblymember Jose Rivera in the Bronx. Jose Rivera has been in office, uh, the Assembly, then City Council, and back to it for 40 years. He took office in 1982. He used to lead the Bronx Democratic Party. Uh, this guy used to be incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Used to be. He is now well into his 80s. He is mostly known for walking around Albany with a camcorder. Uh, he puts everything on YouTube. He's, <laughs> he's a fascinating character of politics. Yes. I mean, just very interesting. Um, but long story short, he was defeated by George Alvarez. George Alvarez, this is not a race that many people were paying attention to. It's In fact, it's not even a race that many people in the district voted for. Very low turnout in the central Bronx. These are the neighborhoods uh, around kind of the Bronx Zoo and the Botanical Garden. We're talking about Belmont. Uh, we're talking about Bedford Park, Fordham. That's kind of where we're looking here. And yes, George Alvarez won. The story there is that he is a uh, endorsee of Congressman Adriano Espeat. And Adriano Espeat is uh, proving to be one of the most influential local political endorsers, movers and shakers. In the past few years, he has been uh, building an empire of uh, mostly Dominican-American candidates uh, kind of across upper Manhattan and the Bronx. He now has many allies who are very close to him uh, George Alvarez is the is the latest one. So keep an eye on Espaillat. I should say Alvarez also had support from the local Congress member there, Richie Torres. They kind of teamed up uh, Espaillat mm-hmm. and Torres to uh, to topple Jose Rivera, longtime incumbent. Uh, Rivera had nominal support from the Bronx Democratic Party, um, but you know I think honestly I think they were kind of okay with seeing him lose. He was always a headache uh, to, mm-hmm. to Hasty, mm-hmm. to uh, to County Leader Jamal Bailey. So an interesting case there. And just one more detail there is uh, there was a third candidate in that race, Manny Martinez, where a Wall Street-backed super PAC donated uh, approximately $500,000, huge amounts of money in that race, to electing Manny Martinez. Martinez ended up getting a distant third place. Um which yeah. just goes to show that, uh, you know, <laughs> look, super PAC money is absolutely influential. There's no doubt that money in politics uh, can, can help influence elections, can help flip seats. I'm glad we pay attention to it. But, uh, boy, that's not the whole story, because sometimes a Wall Street backed super PAC can come into the Bronx and spend more than all the other candidates combined and still go absolutely nowhere (laughs) just and simply lose badly. Let me also note here that um, the disgraced former state Senator Hera Montserrat appears to have lost another attempt uh, to go to the state assembly, losing to Jeff Aubrey in Queens uh, again. So that's a notable one because there's a lot of people who've been concerned about Montserrat sort of returning to accrue more power and returning to uh, state government uh, in some way. So he's looking uh, like he's lost again. And um, I wanted, you know, one of the races I was looking at um, was Assemblymember Inez Dickens in, in Harlem and facing a progressive challenge from a pretty well-known activist and advocate, Delcenia Glover, who had been uh, a deputy public advocate under Jamani Williams and, you know, very well-known, especially around housing issues. Um, I thought Dickens 
even though she's been uh, elected to office many times, city council, state assembly, you know, I thought she might be in some trouble, um, was a little bit surprised how well she did there. I thought maybe there'd be a little bit more of a, of a, uh, you know, a run at Assemblymember Deborah Glick in the race from her left, the, uh, the working families back. Uh, candidate Ryder Kessler, who was running there as sort of a, you know, an urbanist, uh, progressive, you know, pro-growth kind of candidate uh, moving, you know, moving the city ahead, uh, you know, accusing Glick of, you know, sort of being too much of a NIMBY and, and keeping, you know, keeping things from changing in necessary ways and so forth. And both of those longtime incumbents, um, you know, won by wide margin. So those are pretty interesting to me as well. And he, and also Michael uh, Benedetto in the, in the Bronx, I think a lot of people thought he was going to be in some trouble, um, but he, he held on fairly easily as well. So those are just a few of the highlights of the types of incumbents that, you know, seem to be vulnerable, but really turned out they weren't. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's uh <laughs> So many. I mean, also, I guess, uh, shout out to a couple new assembly members. I mentioned Juan Ardilla winning an open seat. Uh, we also have Alex Boris uh, winning Dan Court's seat on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Uh, Alex Boris uh, definitely presented himself as a progressive and he won some kind of local progressive endorsements, but did not have any support from the Working Families Party who uh, backed his opponent. Uh, DSA didn't get involved there. Um, so actually, it seems like Boris might end up being kind of like Dan Court, uh, somebody who was a progressive legislator, um, but didn't kind of wasn't part of the movement, really. Mm -hmm. So one to keep an eye on there. And then on the west side of Manhattan, Dick Godfrey retired after 50 or 52 years, uh, incredibly long career, uh, retired and endorsed Tony Simone, a local leader there. And Tony Simone won pretty easily. So there's an yep. open seat. Um, also didn't have any involvement from any of the kind of progressive movement, but Simone was very much the establishment candidate. All the local electeds, including Gottfried, supported him. And uh, I guess, uh, and actually, uh, it is Pride Month. Uh, Tony Simone is is out and gay, and so there is another gay legislator in these uh, historically uh, LGBT neighborhoods on the west side of Manhattan. You know, representing uh, Chelsea and and the Village and Hell's Kitchen. So uh, interesting candidate to watch there as well. Uh, another plug for a recent episode here. I had Dick Gottfried on the show a couple of weeks ago for a sort of exit retirement interview as he's wrapping up his 52 years in the state assembly. Yes, 52 years, uh, somewhere, I think it was 35 years of those chairing the assembly health committee. So we had a really good long talk here on the show about the arc of his career, what's changed, what hasn't, his leadership of the health committee, you know, when he became health committee chair, it was in the midst of the 80s and the AIDS crisis, uh, especially representing that district that you note on the west side of Manhattan. So he talked about that, uh, his longtime quest for single payer health care, which was not successful. Uh, we chatted about that. So really interesting conversation recently here on Max Politics uh, uh, with Dick Gottfried, among other conversations. All right, Jeff Colton of City and State. Uh, let's talk about a couple other things before we say goodbye. The Republican primary for governor, uh, Congressman Lee Zeldin of Long Island was the front runner from the start. He jumped into the race early. He started getting lots of endorsements from party officials. Um, some things happened that were interesting to shake up the race a bit. Andrew Giuliani with his famous father and name recognition 
got into the race and made some noise. Harry Wilson got in very late, but spent over $10 million of his own money on ads. That didn't do a lot for him, but it certainly scared Zeldin. Uh, Rob Astorino was the fourth candidate in the race. He had been the gubernatorial nominee for the Republicans in 2014 against Andrew Cuomo, obviously unsuccessful there, but he came in with a solid base in Westchester, some name recognition among Republicans. But Zeldin for the you know more or less ran away with it, getting close to forty five percent or so of the vote here in a four way race is is pretty strong. Uh, any thoughts, any takeaways on that, and and what to uh, look for from Lee Zeldin here in the general election? As Kathy Hochul is already painting him as a Trump uh, Trumpist extremist, uh, which you know he's a he's he's a he's a Trumper and he's um, you know uh, fairly far to the right and voted uh, on the night of January 6, twenty twenty one, to overturn election results and uh, and other things. So um, you know, depending on your word choice, but uh, she she's not too off there. Uh, but what do you make of that result and what to watch for from Lee Zeldin here? Yeah, the most interesting thing about that primary was that it happened at all. Uh, Republicans usually avoid statewide yeah. primaries. Uh, there hasn't been one since 2010 when we saw Carl Paladino defeat Rick Lazio uh, and then go on to lose to Andrew Cuomo. Um, and I think that actually might explain it. Uh, that was an open seat for the governor that year. They were you know, taking on a new governor, Andrew Cuomo, in 2010. Um, and I think the Republicans are once again feeling like, oh, you know, maybe Maybe this could be our year. Democrats have a more than two to one voter advantage, uh, registration advantage in New York. So in an average year, Democrats should and have won very easily statewide. There hasn't a uh, Republican hasn't won a statewide election since 2002 when Pataki won his third term. So, you know. Democrats shouldn't be worried, but you know what? They kind of are. Uh, this is going to be everyone expects it to be a historically bad year uh, in the midterm elections, at least on the congressional level, uh, because of, well, various reasons. Uh, so there is, you know, a little bit of concern from the Democrats. Uh, I think that uh, having Zeldin win here uh, does speak to the, you know, continued uh organization and influence of the state Republican Party. They endorsed Zeldin. They went all out for him. And the fact that he won shows that, you know, they still have some some oomph among voters. Um, same as the Democratic Party, I should say, with Hochul. So, you know, very much a, a race to watch here. Uh, I, well, I guess it's too early to make predictions. Who knows yeah. what's going to change between here and November. But uh, I will say once again, more than two to one Democratic voter advantage. And if Democrats can uh, motivate people to come out in uh, in November, then the state shouldn't have any trouble uh, staying in Democratic hands and uh, and with the incumbent remaining in power. Yeah, it's also noteworthy. There's there's actually more registered voters who are unaffiliated with a party, otherwise known as independents, than Republicans in New York State, and and that is quite a remarkable statistic. It's a pretty close number, but um, clearly the Republican nominee for governor has to appeal to independent voters and conservative Democrats, and it will be very interesting to see Lee Zeldin's attempt to do that. He's obviously going to focus on crime and public safety, taxes, inflation. Uh, you know, quality of life issues, education issues, you know, lots of sort of local bread and butter Republican issues. 
Um, and then, you know, the governor, uh, Kathy Hochul, will be running on a whole different set of issues uh, related to uh, abortion rights, gun control, uh, things she's done as governor related to child care and infrastructure and lots of other things. So it'll be interesting how to see how they draw each other into the issues that they're each going to run on, because there's going to be, uh, I don't know, limited limited crossover, at least, uh, it seems, in, in some of the the core issues that they're running on. So that'll be very interesting and how Zeldin is able to, is able to try to appeal to uh, independent voters, especially voters, you know, in the, in the suburbs uh, that, you know, Democrats often win and, uh, and, you know, he's got an uphill battle to try to convince to go his way, considering his, you know, uh, positions on gun control and abortion. Um, I don't know how much his vote, you know, his vote in the, on the election results, um, in January, 2021 will really matter to voters. Um, you know, though, I think the voters who that matters most to will probably already be democratic voters, but that'll it'll be interesting to see whether Hochul really tries to paint him as sort of a insurrectionist, you know, uh, ally, um, for, for, for that vote on the night of, uh, I can, I can guarantee you, she will paint him as an insurrectionist ally <laughs> and he will paint her as a, as a socialist who wants to defund the police. Right, uh, right, right. One of those might be more accurate than the right, other. Right, you know, right. This is a statewide primary in November and, uh, I think the candidates are going to be painting with broad brushes. Well, and also, you know, I'm interested to see what kind of attacks he goes at her with in terms of the Cuomo ties, because, um, you know, that, that's an interesting play in a general election. I'm not sure, you know, and it'd be interesting. It'll be interesting to see some of the latest polling when the when the general election polling starts to come out and, and uh, assess some of that, you know, Um uh, there's there's pockets of the state, obviously, where Andrew Cuomo's name is still somewhat popular, as Tom Swasey reminded us, saying he would accept his endorsement in the primary. Um, but also, you know, the Democratic candidates did not go, you know, Jamani Williams tried to make the case, but did not go that hard at Hochul on being Andrew Cuomo's lieutenant governor and basically just, you know, sort of never speaking out in opposition to him in any way, never really publicly criticizing him or breaking from him, even during some of the pandemic mistakes and the nursing home scandal and the book deal. So uh, that'll that'll be another interesting one as she tries to tie him to Trump, how much Zeldin tries to tie her to Cuomo. Um, all right, Jeff, last couple of thoughts. We have other primaries coming up in August, State Senate, Congress, any one or two things you're starting to really look at? Boy, I am wondering <laughs> if uh, progressive challengers who are hoping to uh, to flip seats or to win open seats are getting very worried. Um, I imagine they are. I imagine there's some considering of uh, whether there's going to be a pivoting in strategy or language or, you know, maybe not accepting an Ocasio-Cortez endorsement or something like that. Um, going to be keeping my eye out for, for that. But uh, look, uh, let's remember these are higher stakes. Um, as you mentioned, there's 150 seats in the assembly um, and it's gonna be in democratic control. The state Senate also safely in democratic control, um, but there will be some interesting um, shifts at the margins potentially. Congress, New York could play a really big role in uh, whether the Republicans are able to flip the house. Um, and we're gonna get kind of a preview of that um, in the primary in August, uh, you know, who's going to be uh, put up against the Republicans in November. So uh, higher stakes in that one, for sure. Going to be really intrigued 
by these August primaries. Of course, I think you and I, maybe yeah. a couple hundred other people are going to be the only ones intrigued. I expect incredibly low, incredibly yeah. low voter turnout uh, when it comes to when it comes to the August primaries. Yeah. You know, I was just going to actually bring that up um, because, you know, I do feel like with some of these, listen, just just New York 12 and New York 10, right? Jerry Nadler, Carolyn Maloney, Siraj Patel in New York 12, and this wide open New York 10 race with Bill de Blasio, Mondaire Jones, Yuli New, Carlina Rivera, and others. Just those two alone, you might see a good bit of voter turnout, you know, drummed up that could rival what we just saw. Um, just just those two races alone in, in so much of the vote-rich territory of the city. Um but August, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting. So both those races, of course, uh, will be fascinating in the Democratic primaries for Congress. Um, but both those seats will remain in Democratic hands. So, the, you know, the, the larger stakes are not quite as high, but uh, very interesting races there that we'll be digging into more uh, here on the show and at Gotham Gazette and at City and State. Uh, Jeff Colton is a senior reporter at City and State New York. Jeff, thanks for uh, taking the time to really uh, break all this down. And uh, and we'll look forward to reading more of your work at City and State soon and, and checking in with you down the road. Thanks so much, Ben. And uh, thank you to everybody who who listens and, and tries to uh, to, you know, understand and analyze these uh, these races. It's it's you know, it's an art. It's a science. It's, it's fascinating. So thank you. We love it. And uh, we appreciate the people who love it. And we hope those people who love it get more people uh, involved in paying attention and reading and listening and voting. Uh, all right, Jeff. Talk to you soon. Thanks a lot. Bye bye.